Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. What happens when a black hole rips a star to shreds? What can a solar science mission tell us about other stars? And is South Africa prepared for the largest radio telescope ever planned? This month on Naked Astronomy, we explore a unique gamma-ray burst, we discover the useful extra info in data from stereo, and discuss the South African bid for the square kilometre array. Plus, news of cogent search for dark matter, Enceladus's salty subsurface sea, and clues on the creation of the solar system gathered from the remains of the Genesis mission. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Now, Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic bring us up to date with this month's science news. Dominic, what have you seen for us? Well, a paper published this month in the journal Nature presents some new results from the Voyager 1 spacecraft which you may remember were launched way back in 1977. And this was one of a pair of spacecraft that were the first to visit the outer gas giants in the solar system, Uranus and Neptune. And they were only the second spacecraft to visit Jupiter and Saturn. So in their time, these were really, truly fascinating missions that were taking images of objects that we knew very little about at the time. And perhaps it's surprising that we should hear a Voyager still doing new science now in 2011. Um, Voyager 1's primary science mission did end in 1980 after it visited Saturn. It was only Voyager 2 that went on to Uranus and Neptune. But these spacecraft have continued flying out through the solar system and we're still in radio contact with them and they have escaped velocity from the sun so they will eventually leave the solar system and enter the interstellar medium. Now, they can monitor their progress as they move outwards through the solar system using ion detectors which can measure the solar wind particles that they're travelling through. And the expectation is that what they will find is that the sun has blown out a bubble using its solar wind, and so we're surrounded by this spherical bubble of solar wind material. And when you reach the edge of that, you will have what's called a termination shock, where that wind is hitting the interstellar medium. And then there'll be a region called the Heliochrish, where this material has built up against the interstellar medium. And then beyond that, you will move actually into the interstellar medium itself. Now, Voyager 1 had 25 rather boring years, it has to be said, after 1980 of just travelling through this solar wind bubble. But in 2004, it saw a sudden change in the speed of the solar wind around it, which was interpreted as it passing through this termination shock and the expectation was that it would then take quite a lot more years for it to actually pass into the interstellar medium but what's rather surprising and what's been presented this month is that it's now seen the speed of the solar wind around it slow down to absolutely zero so this material is now at a standstill and that is interpreted as showing the beginning of a transition perhaps towards the heliopause when it will move into the interstellar medium perhaps as early as 2012, we think. Now, it has to be said this has not been predicted by any models. The models were all saying it would take a lot longer for this to be seen. 
And so I think we are going to have to wait and see what Voyager's detectors send back in the next few months. And perhaps it is rather exciting that 34 years after this spacecraft was launched, it's still sending back incredibly surprising results. But what are these particles interacting with in order to slow down to zero velocity? The idea is that the galaxy has this gas called the instellar medium, which is flowing around the galaxy. And the solar wind is blowing out this bubble, which at some point collides with this instellar gas. And it's that shock front which we're now probing. Thank you, Dominic. Uh, Carolyn, what have you found for us? Well, staying with the solar system and also talking about probes flying around and past giant planets, um, I'm going to return to Saturn and the Cassini mission, which has been in orbit around it and the moons and rings of Saturn since about 2004. And during its time there, it's made several flybys of Saturn's sixth largest moon, Enceladus. This isn't a moon like our moon. It's only about 500 kilometres across. And it's coated in thick layers of ice in which there are enormous cracks and fissures. And out of these fissures erupt jets, plumes of material vaporising into space. These plumes leave a trail behind them and they create Saturn's E-ring. That's a very sort of faint and diffuse ring, one of the very much outer rings of Saturn. It's not one of the ones you can see through a telescope. So what they've done is in these fly paths, they've flown Cassini through the plumes to actually sample what they're made of. And they've done this several times. And the most recent set of results have been uh, published in Nature just recently by Frank Postberg from Heidelberg in Germany and his collaborators. And they analyse what's in this icy spray that's coming from the cracks in the surface near the South Pole of Enceladus. The particles impact on the detector and that virtually sort of vaporises them and from that they can analyse constituent chemicals within the spray. And they see a difference between the particles in this spray from the moon from very close to it and further away. Now, very far away, the particles are very small and they're very salt-poor. And they're, they're very much like the material that goes around to making the earring. If you go quite close to the moon, though, and close to the surface, the particles are much more massive, they're much heavier, and they're very salt-rich. And the interesting thing is that these particles are thought to perhaps not get very far from the moon because they're heavier, they fall back down to the moon. And it's only those very light, fluffy particles that actually escape to make the earring. But the fact that you get these salt-rich particles is interesting because that can only come from a liquid, a salty liquid. It's not something you get from ice sublimating because if you freeze ice, you expect to squeeze out the salt. And so the fact you get salt-rich particles means it's coming directly from a salty water. And again, it's part of this evidence that 50 miles under the crust, there's a liquid salt ocean underneath Enceladus' surface. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Andrew, what have you got for us? Well, there have been rumours floating around for a couple of months now, and now these have been confirmed in a paper, that an experiment called Cogent has detected a signal which is consistent with it seeing particles of dark matter. So uh, to explain that, we, we should rewind a bit to what these kind of experiments are actually trying to do. The idea is basically that you build what is effectively a huge target to try and catch a dark matter particle because we think dark matter particles are all around us, streaming through us all the time. But they interact very weakly 
So generally speaking, they can go straight through you or straight through the Earth even or straight through much larger astronomical objects without directly colliding with any of the atoms in there. In theory, if you build a, a target that's big enough and you're careful enough about how you do this, it should be possible to detect dark matter particles just occasionally, effectively you know, bouncing off uh, uh, targets that you put there for them to, to bounce off. There are lots of experiments out there that are trying to do this and trying to see direct evidence for this dark matter stuff that astronomers have been claiming exists for several decades. Some experiments already have claimed to see a detection. Uh, notably, there's an experiment called DHARMA, which has been claiming for several years now that they see a signal consistent with coming from dark matter. But the trouble is other experiments have seen nothing and so it's a, it's a very confused picture. And the way that the Dharma experiment claimed to see something that must be dark matter is they saw a number of events which could have been dark matter particle collisions or it could have been some more boring particle colliding with their detector. The reason they think it's dark matter is because they see an annual modulation in the number of events they're seeing. So over the course of a year, the, the number of events goes from being large to being small to being large to being small again. And that's exactly what you'd expect to see because if dark matter particles are, are coming through the solar system all the time, which we expect they should be, then just the effect of the, the Earth going round the sun would mean that the uh, number of particles you expect to see at any time is dependent on, uh, on, on which direction the Earth is moving at. So you get this uh, change uh, over the course of a year. So that was the Dharma result. It was, it was hotly contested. And one of the things this cogent experiment was supposed to do was to rule out the Dharma result. But actually, it's seen a signal that is absolutely consistent with what Dharma had been seeing. So it now seems that we've got these two experiments. They've both seen this annually fluctuating signal. It really does seem like maybe they are uh, seeing a, a, a hint that, that dark matter really is there. But before you get too excited, there are other experiments out there which flatly contradict these results. So we, we're in this bizarre situation where we've got independent results from completely different experiments. Some of them point in one direction, some of them point in another direction, and it's very hard at this time to, to know what to make of these results. So as we seem to end up saying all the time, watch this space. You know you're in very particular company when they describe cosmic rays as boring. <laughs> yeah, that is true, yeah. <laughs> uh, Carolyn, what else do you have for us this month? Well, carrying on with the theme of dark matter, um, but in a very different context from here on Earth, going out to an enormous cluster of galaxies, many millions of light years away from us. And this cluster is called Abel 2744. And a cluster of galaxies, they're, they're some of the largest gravitationally bound structures in our universe. And you get hundreds, thousands of galaxies all confined within a space, a volume tens of millions of light years across. And it's thought that these build up fairly gradually where you get small clusters of galaxies merging together to form larger clusters. And this particular cluster seems to be the product of four galaxy clusters in a head-on collision that's been going on for about 350 million years. And there have been some images of it using a range of wavelengths and deconstructing the different matter components within the cluster. So, for example, there's um, optical data from HST and VLT, which show the distribution of the galaxies in the cluster. Now, that's only about 5% of the total mass there. This is combined with Chandra X-ray telescope data showing the hot gas that lies in an atmosphere between the galaxies, and that's about 20% of the total matter there. 
So both these images are being combined with a lensing analysis of the cluster. Now, gravitational lensing is the sort of distortion you get in background galaxies if there's a large mass in the way. And it's a key indicator for dark matter because dark matter doesn't give off or absorb any radiation, but it still has gravity, so it still bends space around it, and that can distort the light paths through space. And so that's the way you trace how much dark matter there is and how it's distributed within a cluster. So the interesting thing about doing this for a complicated collisional cluster like this is that these collisions appear to separate out all these different components. So there's an awful lot of space between the galaxies in a cluster. So if two clusters meet head-on, the galaxies tend to go past each other. They don't actually impact on each other at all. And so they pass through fairly unaffected. The hot gas, however, gets squeezed. It's, you get this sort of resistance, almost like a drag force, and you get shockwaves travelling through. So the hot gas is slowed. The interesting thing is what happens to the dark matter. And when we've seen this before in things like the bullet cluster, it tends to follow the optical galaxies because it only interacts gravitationally with other matter and it passes through mainly unaffected. This particular cluster is interesting, though, because the dark matter seems to have separated out even from the galaxies which isn't quite what we'd expect, not what we've seen. And it could just be it's a particularly chaotic, a particularly violent phase in the cluster's history that you've got this extreme separation out of the components. And the interesting thing, of course, is what we do with these data now. You've got this mapping of where all the components are. The next stage is to match them, perhaps in simulations and models, because it's only by trying to track back through what's happened you get a good idea of whether we've got a true understanding of the distribution of all these various matter components within a cluster. And can we reproduce the kind of spread of behaviour we see if we smash two in together or, or four clusters together? Well, thank you very much. And Dominic, our last news story for today, what have you got for us? Well, moving back to a very much smaller scale, a pair of papers in this week's issue of the journal Science present some of the first results from the Genesis spacecraft. Now, this was a mission launched in 2001, and its purpose was to sample material from the outer layers of the sun. Now, obviously, actually picking up material from the surface of the sun is very difficult, so it was going to do the next best thing in collecting particles from the solar wind, which is ejected by that surface of the sun, and trying to infer back what the composition of the material that produces the solar wind is. Now, the way it did that was to have an array of silicon carbide wafers, which are similar to the kind of wafers you would use to reduce computer chips, and it pointed those towards the sun. It exposed them to solar wind, and as particles collided with these wafers, they stuck into the wafers... And then the idea was you could close up the spacecraft, bring it back to the Earth, and then you could analyse those wafers and see what particles had stuck to them, and from that work out what the solar wind's composition is. Now, this mission didn't quite go to plan. It worked until the last step of bringing these wafers back to the Earth. The idea was that parachutes would deploy to give these wafers a very soft landing in the Utah desert. Unfortunately, those parachutes did not deploy... And so this spacecraft slammed into the desert at about 90 metres per second. And the wafers were mostly broken and many of them were contaminated with desert material. And there was some fear at the time that perhaps this was the end of the Genesis mission. But over the past seven years, people have been working to try and recover data from the fragments of this spacecraft. And one of the things they've been able to do these solar wind particles that collided with these silicon wafers collided at tremendous velocity. 
And that means that they actually stuck deep down inside these wafers, whereas the particles that stuck to the wafers during the collision with the desert collided at much lower velocity and are mostly just on the surface. So one thing you can do is just clean off the top 20 nanometers of these wafers and then look at what you have beneath, and you know that's probably genuine solar wind material. It's taken a long time, but the results that we see presented this week are that the abundances of different isotopes of oxygen and nitrogen in the sun appear to be quite different by about 7% to what we see on the Earth and all the other terrestrial planets. Now, isotopes, of course, are different forms of chemical elements with different numbers of neutrons in each atom. So, for example, oxygen exists in the oxygen-16 state that we're used to, but also an oxygen-18 state. Now, it's very surprising that you would see different isotopic abundances in different places in the solar system because very few processes selectively change the abundances of different elements. Chemically, they react in more or less the same way. Radioactivity is one way that you can change isotopes, but these are not radioactive species. There's no radioactive decays between these states. If we think the surface of the sun is pristine material, from the solar nebula that eventually formed the solar system, which we do because the fusion is all in the core of the sun and is very badly mixed with the outer layers that are essentially radioactively inert, then it seems some process must have changed the abundance of different isotopes in the terrestrial planets. And perhaps this was some chemical reaction that selectively reacted with one isotope as compared to another. We don't know of such a chemical process at the moment. But if these results are correct, it suggests that there must be some really very important chemical reaction which is taking place on planet-wide scales on all of the terrestrial planets, which is binding up this oxygen-16 to mean that we see a much higher factor of oxygen-18 in the planets as compared to oxygen-16, and likewise for nitrogen-14 versus 15. Thank you, Dominic. And if you'd like to follow up on any of this month's stories, you can find references on our website, along with all of the previous Naked Astronomy podcasts, at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Still to come, we'll have the answers to your space science questions and a fact impact all about galaxies. But first... An unusually bright and long-lived burst of gamma rays was detected by the SWIFT satellite in March this year. It was pretty spectacular and unlike anything we've ever seen before, and researchers think it was the result of a star about the size of our sun being torn to shreds by a supermassive black hole. To find out more, I spoke to Andrew Levan from Warwick University. So what we saw here, the first observation we had, was a detection of a, of a flash of gamma rays from the SWIFT satellite at about lunchtime on the 28th of March this year. And that was the first hint we had of anything going on. We then followed up that location that came from that observation with a range of telescopes uh, over the next 24 to 48 hours. And in particular, using the Gemini telescope, we were able to, to obtain a distance to this event. And then actually, as things progressed, we saw that this flashed not just once in gamma rays, but actually four times in total over those 48 hours. So it was really that sort of two-day period from the 28th to the 30th of March where we, we first saw this and we first realised that it was something very special. The fact that it was gamma rays we were picking up suggests that this is actually a very energetic event. Oh, absolutely, yes. So only the, the, the most energetic events uh, you know, in the universe can easily produce copious amounts of gamma rays. And so that really involves 
interactions of, of, of very high energy with things like neutron stars, which are very compact stars and, and black holes. What was the next step? Now that we've observed it with a few different telescopes, how do we then start to tease apart the story and work out what this event actually was? So what we did, having ascertained that this was already something unlike anything we'd seen before, it turned out that the, the crucial diagnostic was where in the galaxy this event came from. So we, we've measured the distance to the galaxy, but we now want to know, is it just out anywhere at random in the galaxy, or more or less, or is it right in the middle of the galaxy? And so, uh, again, using a, another range of telescopes, actually about, I think, about 15 in total, stretching from the gamma ray all the way to the radio, so right across the electromagnetic spectrum, we were able to, to pinpoint the, the location of this event to the very core, the very nucleus of this galaxy. And what that told us was, coupled with how energetic and how bright it was, it was almost certainly involving the, the supermassive black hole that is a black hole with the mass of a million times the mass of the sun, which sits in the very middle of the galaxy. So that was the sort of the first major step that you realized it was something to do with the central black hole. And then you can look at the properties of this event, so how it evolves in time, for example. Uh, and using that, you come up with the only plausible model that you can come up with, which is that what you're seeing is, is not something which is very long-lived. You're seeing something that's over with, within a few months, at least, which is a star being shredded and falling into that black hole. That sounds like a, an incredibly destructive process, which would, I guess, explain the energy that was given out. But what else that we know of could have been responsible? What other processes give out that sort of energy? The thing that we thought this was, you know, when it first went off, it was detected by this mission called SWIFT, which studies gamma-ray bursts. And so gamma-ray bursts are caused when a, a very massive star, say 30 or 40 times the mass of the sun, runs out of fuel in the middle and collapses under its own weight to make a black hole. That's the sort of thing that creates this sort of energy. But that only happens once. You can only collapse your star once. And so you don't get these repetitive gamma-ray flashes over two days. Uh, and also, it just doesn't last at the same bright level for so long as this did. The other sort of event that you can be talking about is, is what's called an active galaxy, and that does involve fueling of the black hole in the middle, but by a more continuous process, for example, just dust and gas falling onto the black hole over millions of years. But those systems evolve very slowly and can't match the speed with which this thing rose and also don't get as bright. From the star's perspective, what do we think actually happened? How does a black hole tear a star apart? Okay, so what happens when a, when a black hole tears a star apart? It's not as simple as just a black hole and the star going straight into the black hole and vanishing. That's actually a very rare sort of thing. You have a really head-on collision. So what happens is the star just happens to pass too close to the black hole. Uh, and as it passes too close to the black hole, it gets pulled by what we call the tidal force. That's basically just a very strong gravitational field of the black hole, which pulls on the star and deforms it. And so as it comes sweeping past the black hole, it basically gets shredded into a sort of banana shape. So after this, you've got this really thing you almost wouldn't recognize as a star. It's basically this banana-shaped stream of matter. And then that matter rains down onto the black hole. It actually forms a little disk around the black hole, which then collapses onto the black hole. So the star is very rapidly ripped into pieces. This has been a, a unique observation, but do we think it's a very rare event, or is it more our own circumstances that lead us to not observe it very often? There are sort of two questions in that. So firstly, this is a very rare event to see in this particular nature, which is the sense that not only do we think that we're seeing this star which is being shredded, but we think we're seeing 
relativistic jets of material. That means we're seeing matter accelerated to very near the speed of light, which is coming off in two beams of light from the black hole. And we happen to see such a bright event because we're looking straight down the beam. And things, events like this are very, very rare. So they're probably something like one per billion years per galaxy. But black holes swallowing stars where either we don't look down the beam or the beam doesn't exist perhaps happen, again, pretty rare, but perhaps every 100,000 years per galaxy, which is obviously much more common. So there's a combination of effects there. It is a rare event, but this particular version is extremely rare. Could we look for evidence of these jets of matter in other ways? So even when we're not down the direct barrel of this collimated energy, uh-huh. can we see the evidence of these happening elsewhere? That's a good question. Because they're, they're, although they're, they're, they're jets moving near the speed of light, they're still not that big on the sky because they don't last for that long. So you can't just see them as these beautiful jets you sometimes see in, in some images of galaxies where you see these lovely radio jets. But what does happen with jets is that as they sort of move away from the source, they interact with all the sort of material that's around and slow down, and then they spread out. So at late times, you might actually be able to see, see evidence for the jet, in particular in the radio band from other sources. And so people have talked about the possibility that you could look for what we would call off-axis events by looking in, in the right wave band at the right time. This has obviously been quite a serendipitous observation, really, but now that we have seen it and we understand what happened how does that help to complete our story of of the life of stars of the life of galaxies well one of the things which is a a very important question in astronomy is, is how galaxies and their central black holes form and evolve and in particular for reasons that actually aren't entirely obvious the the nature of the the black hole in the middle of the galaxy seems to be very tied to the nature of the galaxy around it so more massive galaxies have more massive black holes in the middle And so there's an issue really of how black holes grow. Now, if you can imagine if you're throwing a a black star with a mass a few times out of the sun into a a black hole every 100,000 years, that's a rare event. But over the lifetime of the the universe, which is 10 billion years, that's still a lot of stars. Uh, And so you can actually build up a substantial fraction of, of the black hole mass, and that affects, of course, the galaxy evolution. So trying to understand the rates at which these events happen does have important implications for our, our understanding of, of, of galaxy formation, as well as just understanding the physics of, of what drives these extremely luminous explosions. Andrew Levan from Warwick University. Now that was an unfortunate fate for a star, but closer to home we have a question from Kevin Crumweedy about the ultimate fate of our planet. He says, I've heard the story that in two billion years the oceans will evaporate and in another seven billion years the sun will swell into a red giant and swallow up the earth. But he wants to know how this was predicted and how certain the science community is that this will be our ultimate demise. Carolyn. I love the idea that we could ever be certain about our ultimate demise. I'm not really going to claim that I'm an expert about the ultimate fate of the Earth because I can't read the future any more than anyone else and I'm certainly not a climate change expert, so I'm not even going to look at that. I'm going to look at outside influences on our Earth. And there are a range of things that will affect the Earth and its climate on the scale of tens of thousands of years. And this is the way that the Earth's orbit changes on long-term cycles. And so we're looking at things that maybe affect the tilt of the axes and how the orbit processes around the Sun. And those changes in movement and orientation will have an impact on the amount and how much solar radiation reaches the Earth with consequences, you know, potentially for long-term periods of glaciation in the future. 
In terms of the ultimate fate of the Earth, we really do have to look at what the Sun's doing. And like all stars, it's currently in what we call the main sequence phase of its life, where it's creating energy by nuclear fusion of hydrogen to helium. And stars in this process get steadily warmer as the, the amount of helium in their core builds up. So this means in approximately you know, one to three billion years' time, the Sun will be hotter than it is now. And that's the point when probably, yes, the oceans will evaporate. And I would guess that's kind of going to be a crunch point for the ability to sustain life on Earth. And then even further into the future, when the sun stops burning hydrogen altogether, it starts to swell up to become a red giant. Maybe six billion years in our future is going to swallow up Mercury. It's probably going to swallow up Venus. And life here on Earth, if it wasn't already uncomfortable, it's going to be worse. We're going to have the atmosphere burnt off and we're going to be left with a dried out husk. That probably marks the, the end point for our planet. It's possible there'll be tidal interactions between the Earth and the you know much closer sun. And maybe we will slowly spiral in and become part of the sun. So we better make the most of the six billion years at most that we've got left. Now, personally, that sounds like quite a long time to me, so I'm not going to worry too much. Dominic, could you help with this question from Gordon Price? He wrote in to say that in photography, you can alter the exposure um, by changing the width of the aperture for a given shutter speed. But in astronomy, where the stars are point light sources, the brightness is only related to the size of the aperture. So... Why is it that these point light sources seem to behave differently from the diffuse ones that we might be taking a, a normal photograph of? Well, it's a good question which addresses quite a common myth about how it is that telescopes allow us to see very distant objects because I think the popular perception is that a telescope is an instrument that magnifies very small objects in the sky and allows us to see very small objects. That's certainly how we use them terrestrially if you're if you're attempting to look at something in the distance you use a telescope it makes it look bigger that that's right the problem with magnifying the sky is that once you magnify it beyond a factor of about 60 beyond what you can see with the naked eye you hit an effect called atmospheric seeing which is where turbulence in the atmosphere blurs what you see and limits your ability to see any finer structures now, it's certainly true that most telescopes do magnify the sky and that in the past 20 years, we've built some telescopes with really quite incredible magnification that's managed to get past atmospheric seeing, for example, by using adaptive optics or by going to space, for example, the Hubble Space Telescope. But for most telescopes, you're limited to a magnification which is perhaps a few times what you would get with a common pair of binoculars. So clearly astronomers are doing something else when they build very big telescopes. And what they're actually doing is collecting light over a very large area. They're having a very large aperture and they're focusing all the light that they collect from that aperture down to a single image. And the telescope is acting rather like an image intensifier to reveal very faint structures on the sky rather than necessarily very small structures. And... So going back to the question that Gordon asked, he asked, when you put a camera on the back of a telescope, why are there different considerations when you're taking photos of nebulous extended objects as compared to stars? Well, you can think of the sensor in your camera as being made up of individual sensor elements. And the ideal exposure you want is the exposure that delivers to each of those pixels just the right amount of light so it's exposed to some ideal level. Now, if you're taking a photo of a star, it doesn't matter what magnification you apply to that star. It's a point of light. 
So it's all focused onto one or a very small number of pixels. And so the amount of light that pixel receives is independent of your magnification. So if you look at a star through a telescope, it appears with the same brightness regardless of what magnification you use. It depends only on the aperture, how bright it appears. If you take a photograph of a nebulous object, the more you magnify it, the more pixels that light is spread out over, and so the less each pixel receives, and you have to expose for longer at higher magnifications. So if you're working in your back garden trying to take a photo, for example, of the Orion Nebula, which has nebulosity mixed in with stars, you have to think very carefully about what magnification to use to get the right exposure for both the stars and the nebulosity at the same time. Well, thank you, Dominic. And we'll stay with you guys now for this month's Fact Impact. This month, a high-speed lowdown of facts and figures on galaxies. Galaxies are vast collections of gas and stars. The Milky Way, the galaxy we live in, is about 100,000 light-years across. And is estimated to contain 200 billion stars. Since early last century, we've known that there are other galaxies beyond our own. And now it's thought the visible universe contains over 100 billion galaxies. By looking at the movement of gas and stars in individual galaxies, we can measure the forces of gravity. And typically, those forces are very strong, far stronger than we'd have initially expected. That led us to believe all galaxies are surrounded by clouds of invisible stuff known as dark matter, which accounts for the unexpected strength of gravity. Actually, we now think it's down to the dark matter that the galaxy forms in the first place. In the early universe, dark matter clumped together and then pulled gas in. The gas turned into stars, forming the first mini-galaxies. But those first galaxies would have been much smaller than our own Milky Way, perhaps 10,000 times smaller. Bigger galaxies are formed over time as small galaxies merge together. And this merging is still going on today. The Milky Way is likely to start merging with our neighbour, Andromeda, in about three billion years from now. Galaxies come in many sizes and shapes. The faintest and tiniest are called ultra-faint dwarfs and shine with the light equivalent to only a few thousand suns. Whereas the brightest shine with the light of a trillion or more suns. Some appear to be flat disks of cold gas and stars. Whereas others are almost spherical and contain mainly stars and very little cold gas. Despite some progress in recent years, it's not fully understood why there are these two different types. In some parts of the universe, galaxies are formed close together. We call these regions galaxy groups, and we live in the local group, which contains around 40 galaxies. Really large galaxy groups, known as clusters, can contain up to a 1,000 galaxies, all bound together by their gravitational attraction. And these clusters are the most massive gravitationally bound objects in the universe, containing up to a 1,000 trillion times the mass of our sun. Still to come, the Naked Scientist's Chris Smith meets Bernie Fanneroff, project manager for the South African SKA bid, to find out what South Africa has to offer for the world's biggest radio telescope. Before that, the stereo mission has already given us some amazing 3D images of the sun, as well as advancing our understanding of coronal mass ejections, the cause of space weather. But it's also proved useful for researchers studying other stars, as I found out from Danielle Buescher from the University of Central Lancashire. Stereo is a NASA mission. It was launched in 2006. It's actually two spacecraft. 
One is in an orbit just ahead of the Earth, the other is in an orbit just behind the Earth, and essentially the angle between the spacecraft increases as time progresses. So essentially from the two spacecraft, what you can do is build up a 3D picture of the Sun, but also you can build up a 3D picture of coronal mass ejections, CMEs. These are the eruptions from the Sun, which if they come towards the Earth can cause space weather around the Earth. The other thing that the stereo spacecraft do, and in particular the heliospheric images which are on stereo, is they look at the Sun-Earth line. Up until now, we've always been at Earth and looking at the Sun. This is the first time that we've gone out of that line and actually can have a look at the coronal mass ejections as they travel from the Sun to the Earth. It's been quite successful so far. There's been some incredible 3D images and I believe it also reached the stage where we could, for the first time, see all of the Sun in one go. Yes, that's correct. Um, The stereo spacecraft are now 180 degrees apart. Um, That happened in February earlier this year. So yes, at the moment we get you know 360 degree coverage of the sun and it's obviously nice to be able to see what the sun's doing all the time but you are actually here to talk about not the main use of stereo but sort of an extra free use that we didn't necessarily anticipate yeah that's right um the heliospheric images um as i said they're looking at the sun earth line predominantly they are looking for the coronal mass ejections but some of the brightest features that we have in the data are the background star field So not only have we used those stars to calibrate the instruments, we're actually using them for science as well now. Myself and my colleagues at the Open University have been looking at uh, different types of variable stars. The heliospheric images are ideal for looking at these particular types of um, variabilities and periodicities in the brightness of the stars because of the long observations that we get. We can see a star multiple times with around about a year separation. So we're looking at very bright stars near the ecliptic plane. So we're looking in a different part of the sky than most other astronomers are looking. So this is all new stuff. One of our big results from the paper that we have had accepted for monthly notices recently is that in our sample we have something like 260 uh, eclipsing binaries, of which 122 were not recorded as being eclipsing binaries in Sinbad. So we're seeing all sorts of variability and periodicity in the brightness of these stars that we didn't know were variable or didn't have periods before. So what is it in particular about the instruments on stereo that make it so appropriate for doing this? Essentially it's the cadence, so we have observations every 40 minutes. Um, You can track a star through um, the field of view of the cameras for around about 20 days. So obviously this is continuous observations. Um, It's not like looking at stars ground-based where you can only do it over night time. We do it every 40 minutes, all day. And I say the length of the observations that we get means that you can look at the periods. Also because the cameras are, are very stable... The photometry is very stable. It's something that we thought we may well be able to do with these instruments, but it's only now that we've calibrated well enough and good enough that we can actually do the science. Are you having to compromise a bit, though? Because surely it's it's set up, it's calibrated, it's specifically tweaked to get that all-important image of the sun. No, basically. Um, as you said, it's, it's, it's free science that we're getting. We do 
do things slightly differently for the variable star studies. Nothing too abnormal. In the movie of some of the data that I've been showing here today, you can still see the coronal mass ejections and you can still see all the all the solar stuff going on that you want to see, but you see your stars as well. As you say, buy one, get one free. So what does this actually tell us? Is it just a cataloguing exercise at the moment or can we start to learn a bit about these new stars? We will be able to learn about the new stars. At the moment it is just a very large survey. We will be looking at specific classes of stars. As I said, there's newly discovered variable stars that haven't been recorded as such before. One of the things that we are looking for is that we might be able to find exoplanets with those light curves as well. Obviously the stereo data will give us ideas and we'll have to follow up with different observations to confirm or not confirm exoplanets maybe but these are things that we're exploring at the moment. Daniel Buescher from the University of Central Lancashire. Still to come we've got more of your questions and we hear about the South African bid for the SKA. Now, Andrew, we've had this question from Charlie Ross. He says, as far as he knows, the best current theory is that the universe is expanding and that the rate of expansion is increasing. But what evidence do we have for this expansion and for its increasing rate? OK, uh, let's take the expansion first. And the main evidence, most direct evidence for that, comes because we know that the galaxies are all getting further away from each other. And we know this uh, largely through uh, looking at other galaxies relative to us. We know they're receding away from us by measuring uh, the wavelength of light coming from them. We see that that wavelength is shifted into the red through an effect rather like the Doppler shift that you get as a, as a fast ambulance comes past you know how the, the pitch changes so you can tell what speed it's moving relative to you. But there are other ways that we know that the universe is expanding. For instance, we observe this microwave background radiation and we also observe the elements in the universe, mainly hydrogen and helium, and those lines of evidence tell us that the universe was once uh, very dense and very hot uh, and has since cooled down in exactly the way you'd expect if the whole universe is expanding. So that's the evidence that the universe is expanding at all. Uh, There's also evidence that this expansion is accelerating and that evidence is more complicated. We, uh, we have to sort of infer the history of the expansion rate of the universe by looking to very distant galaxies. And, and when we look at distant parts of the universe, we see them as they were further back in time. So through this process, we can kind of infer what the history of the expansion rate has been. And we see that the, the expansion rate has, in fact, been speeding up. And we get more evidence about that from, for instance, seeing the, the size of features in that microwave background light that I was talking about earlier on. Again, gives us evidence that the universe's expansion rate is speeding up. But that said, while the evidence for expansion is absolutely concrete, the evidence for the accelerating expansion uh, is potentially still ambiguous and people are trying to find other explanations for these observations that make us think that the universe's expansion is speeding up. Those explanations at the moment really don't seem to work so we do tend to believe that the expansion rate really is speeding up but it's still an open book. Things could change on that front. 
Thank you, Andrew. Carolyn, we've had this question from Larry Deck. He says that we're just now seeing light from galaxies that formed a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. And he would think that that now distant galaxy was actually relatively close to us at the time that it formed. So why are we only now seeing the light from its formation? Well, it's, we're going to have to go back to this expansion of space that Andrew was just talking about. So when the universe was some hundreds of millions of years old and the galaxies were just forming, the universe would have been a lot smaller than it is now, but still big enough that the light from a very far-off forming galaxy would take a finite time to travel to us. So if the universe was completely static and it stayed that size, then yes, the light would have long since reached us and, and overtaken us. The catch is, of course, that the universe is not static, it is expanding. And that means that when your photon of light leaves a distant galaxy to travel to us, the space it's flying through is continuing to stretch. So the distance it has to cross to get to us is increasing all the time. If that speed of expansion is comparable to the speed of light, which it really is at the far reaches of the universe, then you're going to have to spend a long time till you can outrun that expansion. And that's why the light from these very distant objects has taken such an incredibly long time to get to us. Thanks, Carolyn. The Square Kilometre Array, or SKA, is set to be a groundbreaking new radio telescope, operating at a wide range of frequencies with 50 times more sensitivity than any existing telescope of its kind. It should help us to answer some of the big, outstanding questions about our universe. Although the headquarters will be based at the Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, the telescope itself will either be located in Australia or in South Africa. Recently, Bernie Fanneroff, the project manager for the South African SKA bid, visited London and met up with Chris Smith. The idea is to be able to look back to the very earliest stages of the universe and see how the universe has developed. It'll also do things like testing Einstein's theory of gravity. It'll look for protoplanets. One of the things it'll do is to look for intelligent civilizations elsewhere in space. How will this telescope work? What's its structure? How's it laid out? It'll be made up of two different kinds of what are called receptors. Most people will know what a satellite dish looks like. A satellite dish is really a mirror. It focuses radio waves from space onto a radio receiver. There'll be another kind of receptor, which is more like a fisheye lens. It sits on the ground. You don't steer it physically. You steer it electronically. But it sees almost all of the sky all the time. So the square kilometre array will be made up of a couple of thousand dishes and a thousand or so of these fisheye lenses. And the dishes will be spread out over about 3,000 kilometres. The fisheye lenses over a couple of hundred kilometres. They'll all be joined together with optical fibre. So they all look at the same thing at the same time. You feed the signals from all of these dishes and fisheye lenses together into one central computer and you can process the data to make a picture of whatever it was that they were looking at. That must be one mega computer. Well, the estimates are that you'd have to have a computer running at exaflop speeds. Exaflop speeds is of the order of a 1,000 times faster than the fastest supercomputers now. The data transport would be several hundred terabits per second, so you're looking at a couple of hundred times more data traffic than you have through the entire World Wide Web at the present time. All coming from one telescope in one day? All coming from one telescope into one central computer and you have to crunch that down and then you have to produce a picture from it. So it pushes a lot of different 
technological boundaries. Why has it got to be so big, though? Why that 3,000 kilometres that you've got to disperse the dishes across? The resolution, the fine detail that you can see depends on how big the telescope is. So, for instance, if you have a pair of binoculars with a very big lens, you can see finer detail than a pair of binoculars with small lenses. So if you can disperse the telescope dishes across the entire Earth, you'd be able to see finer detail than if they're all close together. You already, in fact, do that. We have what is called very long baseline interferometry, where you have radio astronomy dishes on different continents all combined together. They look at the same thing, and you get a telescope which is effectively the size of the Earth. So why South Africa? Well, first of all, we have an exceptionally good site. It's very quiet, radio quiet, in the sense that there's very little interference. We've been able to work with our signal broadcasters and our mobile phone operators and others to reduce even further any signals that there are. So it's a very quiet site. The physical characteristics are good. We have large flat areas. Temperatures and winds are, are benign. There's no extreme weather. And there's a lot of infrastructure already in place, so it's easy to put it down there. And it reduces the costs because the cost of construction is lower. You've got some infrastructure, but also building in South Africa is just more affordable than it would be in many other places. Because the other major contender is Australia. We're discouraged from giving comparatives. Let me just say that construction and operation in South Africa is relatively uh, low cost. Is South Africa ready for this kind of project, though? Because to develop that kind of computer and that kind of infrastructure, can the country deliver that at the moment? Well, we certainly can. First of all, we've got quite a good base of high-tech industry as well as construction engineering industry with an international track record. But we've done two things which have helped us to develop a really vibrant and world-class community. The first one is that we've been building what we call the Meerkat Telescope, which is a scaled-down version of the Square Kilometre Array. It will have 64 dishes instead of a couple of thousand of them. It'll be on the same site in the Karoo. We've built the first seven dishes, and we're commissioning that as a prototype. Then going with that... We've developed uh, a big bursary and grants program to strengthen our universities. So we have five research chairs in our universities. We've had 117 PhD and MSc students in engineering and astronomy. We've got about 100 undergraduates in physics and engineering. We're training technicians and artisans. One of the things which has become clear is that the 100 or so young engineers and scientists who directly work on the project, now I'm excluding the ones in the university, are amongst the best engineers and scientists in the world, and that has been recognised by the rest of the SKA International Consortium. What do you hear for in London? To talk to people about why South Africa is a good site and why it's important to have the SKA in Africa. We have been quite reticent about blowing our own trumpet, and we feel it's time we started to do that. And if it does go South Africa's way, what will this mean to the country if you get this? I think it'll be very important for us. First of all, it'll change the way we see ourselves, that we can be a centre for science and astronomy. And one of government's objectives from 1996 is for Southern Africa to be a centre of astronomy. The other thing is I think it'll change the way the world sees us. We're already seeing a lot of very 
good academics and researchers wanting to come to South Africa to work on the meerkat. And that wasn't so easy a few years back. If we have the SKA in Africa, we'll have more of those people coming, and that will strengthen our innovation system, our universities, and it will just strengthen the whole capability in these high-tech and scientific areas. And what are the really big questions that you're going to answer with this? The first one, I think, is that people would like to understand dark energy better. Why is the universe expanding faster and faster? What is the large-scale structure of the universe? It has voids in it, bubbles. How do the bubbles originate? What has happened to the structure of the universe over the life of the universe? It will enable us to study galaxies and how galaxies form and evolve so that we can understand better what dark matter is. Both dark energy and dark matter are known to be there because we can see their effects, but we don't know what they are. So those are very interesting challenges. Then it will test Einstein's theory of gravitation by enabling us to look for gravitational waves, by enabling us to study what happens very close to black holes. It'll look for protoplanets. These are all very exciting questions. Bernie Fanneroff talking to Chris Smith at the South African High Commission earlier this month. Regardless of which country is chosen, the SKA is planned to start construction in 2016, and if all goes well, it should be fully operational by 2024. So the SKA should help to answer some outstanding questions about dark matter and dark energy. And Andrew, we've got a question on this topic from a Belgian plumber called Roy. And he says he understands that matter and antimatter should have formed in equal amounts when the universe was formed, but now we can't see that antimatter. Could it be that the antimatter is dark matter or dark energy? Well, first of all, it's absolutely right that, that according to sort of basic theories, we would expect uh, antimatter and matter to have been formed in the Big Bang in equal amounts. But today, of course, uh, we're made out of matter and we see matter all around us. And this is uh, essentially still a, a, an outstanding question. Why is it that there must have been more matter than antimatter in the early universe? Because somehow the matter came to dominate the universe that we see today. Now, there has been some progress in, in understanding what's required of high-energy physics to get this imbalance coming out, and it's a topic called baryogenesis and leptogenesis, and, and there has been some progress in that area, but I think it is still an open question. So let's just ask ourselves what would happen if somehow this idea was wrong and actually there was still antimatter in the universe. The first thing that would have to be true is that the antimatter would have to be in isolated pockets because there's certainly no antimatter in our immediate vicinity. Those isolated pockets would presumably have some boundary where they meet the, the rest of the universe, which is mainly made out of matter. And at those boundaries, you would be able to see that those boundaries were there because antimatter and matter would be coming together at those boundaries and annihilating. So we would have hints, uh, astronomical hints, that there were pockets of antimatter around us. And there are, there are no such hints. So we really don't think there is a significant amount of antimatter out there. But even if there was antimatter out there, it couldn't be dark matter because dark matter is all around us. And if antimatter was all around us, we'd constantly be bombarded by this stuff. It would constantly be annihilating. We'd be seeing the signal and uh, we'd be very aware of it. So it can't be dark matter. And 
It also can't be dark energy because the whole idea of dark energy is that it has negative pressure. Now, that might sound like a, a really weird thing to say anything could have uh, because, of course, everything that we're used to has positive pressure, that all the stuff around us uh, on, on a day-to-day basis has positive pressure. But the idea of dark energy is that it has negative pressure and it's that negative pressure that allows it to accelerate the expansion of the universe, as we were discussing earlier on. And antimatter certainly doesn't have negative pressure in this sense. So, uh, sadly... Uh, no, it, it just doesn't seem like antimatter can do any of the stuff that dark matter and dark energy uh, needs to do. But it would have been neat if it could have done. Thank you, Andrew. I think it's also important to note that very appropriate for a plumber, Roy actually formulated that question while he was in the bath. That's a real eureka moment. <laughs> uh, and finally, for this month, Dominic, could you help with this question from Nathaniel Toothaker? He says that the Big Bang had to have been the hottest and densest of any explosion in the history of the universe. So why did it form primarily hydrogen and helium instead of instantly fusing those elements together to form the bigger, heavier elements? Well, that's a great question. Fusion, of course, is the process by which light atomic nuclei can collide together to form more massive nuclei. So, for example, the simplest fusion process is where you take hydrogen atoms and you stick those together to make helium, which is the second element of the periodic table. And it's that fusion process that gives the sun its power and that we might actually hope to reproduce on the Earth to produce a nearly limitless supply of energy out of seawater, perhaps. Now, the reason why it's incredibly difficult and why I don't think it's going to be a practicable source of energy in the near future is that you have to get your gas incredibly hot for fusion to take place. You need a temperature of about 10 million degrees C. And the reason you need those temperatures is that atomic nuclei are positively charged and they electrostatically repel one another. And so to actually get them to come close enough to another to stick and to fuse, you need them to be moving incredibly fast. Now, there are other fusion processes that go beyond forming helium and which form successively heavier nuclei, lithium, beryllium, then moving on to carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and eventually all the way up to iron. But those processes involve fusing nuclei which are even more positively charged than than hydrogen because they have more protons in them and therefore need even higher temperatures of about 100 million degrees C. So those temperatures are so hot that even the sun isn't hot enough to make heavier elements at the moment. It probably will have a brief spell of fusing heavier elements at the end of its life but most of the fusion of heavy elements occurs in more massive stars like for example Betelgeuse. So the saying goes that all the heavy elements in the universe were made in stars by this process of fusion. So it's a good question, given that we know the Big Bang was so hot, as to why these fusion processes didn't occur in the very early universe. But looking at the sequence of events that happened after the Big Bang, initially the universe was so hot that protons and neutrons couldn't stick to form atomic nuclei at all, above a temperature of about 10 billion degrees C. They preferred to just be free-flying particles. Once the universe cooled below about 10 billion degrees, that was after a few seconds after the Big Bang, fusion could begin and atomic nuclei could start to form. But it was then a race against the clock before the universe cooled beyond this critical temperature of 10 million degrees C, above which fusion is possible. And that temperature 
was reached after a few minutes after the Big Bang. So this time window when fusion could occur was only about three or four minutes after the Big Bang. And so essentially the reason why substantial amounts of fusion didn't occur was that the Big Bang had three or four minutes to do it, whereas a massive star like Betelgeuse has got several million years in which to fuse these elements. Thank you, Dominic. But that's all we have time for on this month's Naked Astronomy. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. In the meantime, keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com and you can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. (laughs) 